One of the tools or the techniques that you can use when you want to learn how to write like you talk is mine your life. Go through your emails. You'll see if you go back and look at your emails that you sent to your buddies, they're fun. Hello, my friend. Welcome. Before we dive in today, I just want to offer you something. Here's what it is. What if you could start every Monday morning with an easy but powerful thought experiment designed to turbocharge your communication and executive presence? What if you could turbocharge your communication and executive presence on a weekly basis for free? Well, that is what you will get when you sign up for my weekly newsletter. Just head to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And Bronwyn is spelled B-R-O-N-W-Y-N. Communications, all spelled out, dot com forward slash subscribe. And as a bonus at the end of each month, I do a favorite things roundup of stuff I'm into, like books, articles, podcasts, and even some retail therapy moments. Anyway, it's good time. And at this point in my life, I'm still able to read every email response I get from you guys. And I try and respond to every single one of them. Now, if you're listening to this into the distant future, maybe like my future self will be so fancy and famous, she'll like live on a cloud and ride a unicorn to work every day. Maybe that future self won't be able to read every email. But as of right now, I totally read my emails from you guys. So it's just a great way to stay connected. And I'm sort of distancing myself a little bit more from social media. So it really is the best way to stay connected. So head over there, bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe, and I'll see you there. Okay, on with the show. There are two types of people in the world. Those who secretly wonder if there's a book inside them waiting to be written, and those who would never in a million years wonder such a thing. This episode is 100% dedicated to people in the former category. My guest today is Linda Sievertson, aka Book Mama, though she could just as easily be called Book Doula, such as her gift. Linda is an author, ghostwriter, and co-author of 11 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, and is the host of top-rated Beautiful Writers Podcast and a mentor to thousands of writers online and in person. Linda has pushed through all manner of rejection to realize her dream to write best-selling books. And while doing best-selling book selling, she helps save trees and fragile ecosystems because my girl knows how to set up deals that work for both the environment and her dreams. I mean, imagine that. Linda and her work have been featured widely in the media, including Forbes.com, The New York Times, Inc., Extra, Teen Vogue, CNN, HuffPost, Glamour, Los Angeles Times, Carmel Magazine, and on the TED Women stage. She gave a TED Talk about time debt that is a real keeper. Google it. Linda loves microblogging about all things writing and dogs and horses on social media and blogs regularly at bookmama.com from her ranch office in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today, she's here to talk to us about her beautiful new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Best-Selling Authors. This book, you guys, is a must-have for anyone who loves books about writing. That would be me. But also, especially for those who just want to hear insight into the craft from brilliant writers like Cheryl Strayed, Terry McMillan, Tom Hanks, 
Stephen Pressfield, Elizabeth Gilbert. And that's like an eighth of the list of authors. It's crazy. It's shocking how many writers are featured in this book right alongside Linda's very own writing journey. So if you've ever wondered about your capacity to write a book, fiction or nonfiction, pour yourself a mug of something cozy and let's dive in. P.S. I know the audio on this is terrible. I'm having issues with Zoom talking to my microphone and I just haven't figured it out yet, but I'm getting close. I'm going to figure it out and it's going to get better, you guys. Big hugs. See you on the other side. I want to start with something that you always say, Linda. You've been saying this since I first met you, I don't know how many years ago, and you literally just said it just a minute ago before we started really recording. You have an uncanny ability to help people remember that they are magical. And your podcast does that. And this book does that. When I think about the beliefs that hold would-be writers back, the fact that we mostly have forgotten our magic, do you think that is the number one belief that holds us back as writers? For sure. We all have like a desire to do something secretive, I think. There's always something in the back of our minds where we're thinking, oh God, if I had more time, if I had more money, if I had more talent, whatever, fill in the blanks, I would do this thing. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to our belief that we don't have what it takes or that life is too hard. And so if you just remember that if you have the ache, you have what it takes. Ooh, you just have to remember that. You would have a different ache. You would want to do something else if this thing that you desire so dearly wasn't wasn't true for you, wasn't something that you could accomplish. What's amazing to me about that too is because you've been doing writers retreats for how long have you been doing Carmel writers? Oh gosh, I think the first one was in 2010, so 12 years. I have been on one of those retreats and they're heaven, but you have maintained your faith in that belief that all of us have that magic. And if there's the ache, what is the phrase you said? If there's if you have the ache, you have what it takes. If you have the ache, you have what it takes. And is that consistently true, Linda? Is that literally been your experience? Oh my gosh, yes. And you've heard it said another way. I mean, I've heard Christians say that God doesn't give you a wish for something that you don't have the ability to attain. And I think that we're all sort of born with a blueprint and that we inherently know kind of the gist of what that blueprint is if we're willing to listen and pay attention. I mean, some of us just go running from it. We just cannot handle the intensity or the bigness of it or the profoundness of it. Mm. But for people that are paying attention and listening, I think we know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Also, there's the fear of running away from it or the bigness of it, but there's also the fear of the mediocrity of it. Oh God, what a great point. I mean, the grind of it. I am not a subscriber to grind culture in any way. And yet, I mean, the two of us are, we're working girls. We're tap dancing working girls. And I think so many people like us who are driven, who have a vision, who have a mission that we're excited about, we have to definitely learn to slow down and breathe and take time off and all of that. And the day-to-day is often a grind. I mean, you have to learn to love the work or you're never going to accomplish what it is that you're setting out to do because the truth is it's hours and hours, endless hours. It's so true. It is endless freaking hours. 
when I think about all of the names, all of the celebrities, all of the luminaries that you've had on your podcast, like their most powerful insights are distilled and they're in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look across, like you've had so many conversations. I don't know how many episodes you are into this. Oh my gosh. Well, I've been doing the podcast for seven years. So good years. Yeah. But it was only monthly until I had the book deadline and then I even slowed it down further. So, you know, that I don't remember. I think there's like only 65 episodes. Amazing. When you look at all of those authors, because I'm thinking about the people who the story in their head that they have is that they're not particularly magical. They don't have anything particularly interesting to say, but they've got that ache and the head trash is getting in the way. Have you heard guests or the people that you have in this book, have they talked about the fact that we do start off mediocre? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, Seba Tahir, whose book, All My Rage, is just nominated for a National Book Award. She used to work at the Washington Post. And she told a story about one of the greatest gifts of working there was to see these like Pulitzer Prize winning journalists mm-hmm. who would turn in a story one week and it was just absolute drivel, just crap. And then they would rework it and rework it, and rework it. And then it would be this stunning piece. But she said across the board, that happened all of the time. And Anne Lamont, who's in the book, talks about shitty first drafts. She's famous for her shitty first drafts and we all write them. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, Mary Carr, she told a story about how she threw away 1,200 pages of lit before she published that memoir. That memoir was a masterpiece. 12 absolute show-stopping masterpiece. Yeah. But they all say that. I mean, Rosie Walsh, who's broke records with her book deals for Ghosted, Mm -hmm. she threw away 40,000 words three different times. Shit. Which actually leads me to my next question. And I want to ask you this as a writer. Many different people have said this, but you really live it. I've heard Seth Godin say it. I've heard Laura Belgray say it. How much do we love her? The best writers write the way they talk. And you are one of those people. I read your stuff and I can literally hear your voice in my head. Although I'm a lot funnier on the page because I take time. I take a lot of time to to edit and re-edit and think about it and talk to friends. And I write shit down when I hear it and then I marinate on it. And so people keep saying to me all the time, oh my God, I didn't know you were so funny. I'm like, because I'm not. I mean, I really work that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. That's hilarious. But I would say like Tom Hanks, he carries a dictaphone with him when he's driving and he's constantly got a pad of paper and a pen with him, as do I. I have, I have paper and pens everywhere. As soon yeah. as I get out of the shower, I always have ideas. In the car for sure, by the bed, always. I'll go to bed with an intention. I'll go to bed with a prayer. I'll go to bed with a an assignment, if you will, for my unconscious or the muse. Like, here's what I need. Tell me what to do with chapter three or what's a good book title or whatever. And then I expect to get answers. So I'm ready with the paper at 3 a.m. That's amazing. So I want to come back to that in just a second. But back to the skill of writing the way you talk. Oh God, so how did you learn that? Really? I mean... I didn't have any other option, Bromlin. I wasn't a brainiac. (laughs) I just wasn't a brainiac. Nobody in school would ever have said, oh, Linda's book smart. That wasn't my deal. I wasn't an academic. I loved school and I loved textbooks. 
but I was in the bottom third of my graduating class in high school. I bailed on college right at the end. So I didn't have a lot of book learning. I had read my whole life. I loved books, but I sure as hell didn't know how to write them. The desire to write was so strong. I thought, let me just write what's in my head. Which is infinitely more interesting than anything that academia, I think, could teach us. I mean, I feel like we have to unlearn that shit in order to be good at writing. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. There, I have so many clients who have their master's or PhD in, in all sorts of different things. And I'm constantly teaching them how to write in today's language because they don't use contractions. It's too stilted. They over explain. It's like, honey, your audience is smart. You have to trust in today's readers. They're savvy and they know quality and you just got to get to the point. You got to get there quickly. And is there something to be said too, Linda, which is you want your audience to like you for your authentic self. And so the quicker you can cut to the chase and show them who you actually are, the more you'll develop like a following and a devoted fan base that way. Like there's no point in dressing it up and trying to be somebody you're not because you're trying to create a relationship with the reader. Well, and I always say everybody's psychic. So trust that. Trust that they know bullshit and they're going to know in an instant if you're not being you. I remember you saying that to me. I think this was like, oh God, this was a long time ago. And I was talking about when you write about things, can you create composites of people? Nobody feels like their shit is exposed. And you're like, you can, but you're like, honey, I think audiences are psychic. They can tell a Franken no. person that you've built. No, 100% no. Which I think is so, so true. What are the tools or the techniques that you can use when you want to learn how to write like you talk? Yeah. Is mine your life. Go through your emails. Go through your voice messages. Tape yourself when you're talking to your girlfriends. You will find that when you're talking to your buddies and you're at dinner, just push play. Say, hey guys, I'm just going to tape this. Do you mind? Usually people will just ratchet up the humor and go for it. But it's like, you'll hear how funny you are. You'll hear the quick ways in which people put things together. And then you can transcribe what you've already got there. And your emails, emails, you'll see if you go back and look at your emails that you sent to your buddies, they're fun. And they're human. It's so funny, Linda, that you say that because when I'm stuck and I just can't get it together and I can't find the words, I pretend like I'm writing to my two best friends and it just flows. So I think that is such a beautiful technique that you're bringing up. Are there other tonal, practical strategies you've heard through these conversations of tricks and techniques that writers use to get that right voice? That's always the hardest part is voice. You know what surprised me, Bron, was that so many of the people that I talk to, Mm -hmm. they have to read things before they write. Or I shouldn't say have to, but they choose to. So Mm. like Cheryl Strayed, almost every time before she writes, she picks up something beautiful and reads it first. Martha Beck does that. A lot of the people I talk to do that where they get in that space of lyrical language, get in that headspace of something that inspires them before they put pen to paper. That is really so beautiful. In fact, it's reminding me, I just recently, you know me, I've been journal, I've been doing morning pages for like 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. And recently I just stopped 
because I'm so sick of my own inside of my brain. I'm just sick of it. Right. Sick of it? Like, right. okay, girl, we've been bitching yeah. about the same thing. I totally see where just standing in a Mary Oliver poem for 10 minutes before you dive in can just take you to a higher altitude. That makes so, so much sense. And actually that leads me to the next question, which is, I think probably the most important part of your book, Linda, is just the tips and strategies you talk about for making time. You know, it's interesting. I have two books on writing rituals. You know me, I collect books about writing. So I've got you, I've got Stephen King, I've got Anne Lamott, I got all the books. And there's two books about, actually it's artist rituals. And one of them, just because it was written before we got more sensitive to these things, is almost all male artists. Like this is yeah. what Van Gogh did. This is what Tchaikovsky did. Da, 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 da. And it's a magical little book. And then the writer went back and did an updated version that's just women's. Oh. Women's rituals for art. And it has no magic because women are always up against the freaking wall with writing and making time for writing because we have husbands, we have children, we have jobs, we have the cultural demands. We're supposed to bake the cookies and da 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 And I found it so depressing to be reading constantly about these women snatching time at 4 a.m. or 9 p.m. But that's sometimes what it takes, right? Yeah, I have this chapter in the book called Stealing Time. And I remember when I spoke with Martha Beck about it, she was like very adamant. It's not stealing time. Anything that takes you away from what you love, now that's stealing. And I'm like, so in her, it was the opposite for her. Whereas for me, oh girl, when I first had the dream that told me to write, which was what convinced me to do it because I never felt smart enough, but the dream was so real and it gave me such specifics to work with. I was so excited. But then I was like, wait a minute, I've got a little kid. I've got a husband who's mostly home during the day. He was an actor. And at the time we were building a cabin and I'm like, how? Where? And so I would steal time anywhere I could get it. Like little league practices. I always had the pile of papers in my lap and the red pen and I'm clapping for my son and looking down quickly. And I would even stop like in traffic. I would edit in traffic. I mean, it was constant stealing time. And And I wrote in the middle of the night. I'd set the alarm for 3 a.m. and write till it was time to take him to school. And one of the things I got really good at was not trashing my body with junk because it was too exhausting. Like I needed to have superhuman energy for all the different things I wanted to accomplish. And crystal clarity of mind. Yeah, that was hard. Nowadays, I don't have that kind of energy. I'm not going to be so extreme. I'm not going to wake up at 3 in the morning. but I do still wake up at five and I love that quiet in the morning, the bed office. That's just the best place to do it for me. It really is. I think to me, for working moms or women with careers, it does suck that we have a lot more assignments than guys do. And we always are going to have to, as they say in Spanish, aprovechar, which is like to set aside to make time for something. And it sucks, but we just have to do it. Well, like, we waste our lives bitching about how unfair it is, or we could just set the alarm an hour earlier and just get it the hell done. It's actually both. I think we have yeah. to set the alarm earlier and get yeah. it done. 
And we have to learn how to negotiate. Mm -hmm. So I have this story in the book about this gal that she came to me and she was so irritated. And I said, just take half a Saturday. So she negotiated with her husband. So she would go to Starbucks for the first half of every Saturday, get so much done. And she'd come home and the house, she said, always looked as if a bomb had hit. And the kids are now like sports aficionados, Saturday college football. And she was like, Linda, there's like crumbs in their shoes and there's dirt in the toaster. And like, how does this happen? Like what? And then she realized it didn't matter that he couldn't take care of the house or the kids the way she would. What mattered was that she was attending to her joy. And you know what? Sometimes I wonder if we're self-sabotaging when we're creating those impossible standards. I can't possibly take time to write my novel or my screenplay in the morning because there's going to be crumbs in the shoes. Who gives a shit? Just write. Who gives a shit, right? And nobody's going to parent like you would. No. No. But if your kids aren't in actual physical danger... Get your house out of the house. And it becomes the stories that I remember. I remember one time I was going away with my besties on a weekend when the kids were little. And as I was pulling away from my house, my husband had like my son who was a toddler under one arm. Bruce Springsteen was like screaming out of the speakers. The kids were filthy on the front lawn. I was like, you do you. This is going to be a memory that they have. That's like part of what makes our family have stories. I absolutely love that. Okay, so we're back to like strategies for becoming the writers we think we might be able to be. Some of the great advice you give in the book is stealing time or demanding or negotiating time, whatever you want to call it, but also the power of community. Talk about the value of writing in communities. I think this is important. Oh my gosh. I think that we as writers were so isolated. And that's a little bit cuckoo bird times for our brains because we're not meant to be in isolation. And yet at the same time, our best ideas come in solitude or we can best hear how to implement them in solitude. And even if you're the bell of the ball and you love doing your research out in a crowd, who doesn't love that? Is it good for you too? Yes. We all need to hear that answer. Is it good for you too? So I started going to a writing support group early on in my time. And it was ridiculous. It was like, there was a gal in there who was a future rock star. There was a gal in there who was an actress who became a huge movie star. And so I, in comparing myself to the group, as these people all became world famous and I couldn't sell anything, That was really brutal. What I needed, I mean, it was hilarious and I think it makes for a good story, but what I really needed at that time in my fledgling career was I needed a writing group with people who I could workshop the material with. I could read the introduction and say, is this too long? And and then I could give feedback on other people's stuff. So I have that now and anyone can create that. That's the thing that is so delicious because we get so isolated. We don't know if our stuff is any good. It's so good to hear it land with other people, to read it out loud and hear them laugh. And God, if we get them to cry and laugh, I mean, how can you get better feedback than that? And you have a virtual writers group on Facebook. I do. 
Yeah, it's called the Beautiful Writers Group. And we have a Facebook group and there where people write to each other and stuff. And we have a weekly write-in where people gather and we have a monthly Q&A call that's really, really fun. And we have weekly newsletters. So that's that's a blast. I love the write-ins when I was getting into something that saved me because I didn't need the feedback so much as I just needed a place where I would show up. And because I'm one of those... Accountability. Yeah. If I knew that somebody was on the other side of that and we're all on mute writing together. That was so profound for me. It was so, so helpful. And I'm actually curious, like when you think of the sort of celebrity writers that you've talked to, Linda... How do those guys do? Do they write in communities? It was, it was really interesting. I love asking them that question. Yeah. The answers are across the board. And Patchett didn't used to. You know, it was interesting. Some of the biggest authors never, never wrote in any kind of a community. I mean, Terry McMillan did. Terry McMillan's first event was at the Harlem Writers Guild, I think it was. And they were the ones she read a short story and somebody in that group said, no, 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 that's a novel. She's like, I don't know how to write a novel. And they were like, you'll learn. Oh. And she was so nervous. She was like taking shots of tequila just to read the short story to these people. But like Ann Patchett, Liz Gilbert, I think even Martha Beck, these people didn't used to share their writing with people. They would just write in. But over time, they got to the place where they were like, oh, this is really more fun and more nurturing. And yeah. it's helpful to work together. Sue Monk Kid reads everything to her daughter. Her daughter gives oh. her great feedback. They ended up writing a book together. But groups can be tough. And I talk a lot about that in the book, like how to handle a group, how to create one if you need one. Because what can happen is our ideas are fragile. And yeah. somebody who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about kills our darling right there, right? It's really, really hard when somebody else is doing it versus when you're editing yourself and really getting rid of what you need to. It's very hard to take those bad comments and exercise them from your brain. Yeah. God, it's just so true. I left you a voicemail about this earlier today, but one of the questions I have for you, Linda, which may connect to this. Well, first of all, has this ever happened to you? I sometimes just get so sick of myself. I'm doing so much speaking right now and so much group work. And I sit down to write and I'm like, not this queen again. Like, does that ever happen to you, Linda? Where you're like, oh, I'm sick of myself. That's hilarious. When you sent me that, I listened to it and I started laughing because, oh my God, yes. But that makes me feel better. Oh my God, yes. You know where it happens the most is when I'm recording the podcast and I will find myself interjecting a story. I'm talking to Tom Hanks or Van Jones and I start telling a story and I'm like, I listen back to it and I'm like, how the hell do I cut that? I have cut so much of myself out of my own podcast because I get so tired of hearing myself. I remember Glennon Doyle saying, we talked about that one time. I asked her that as well because she had been on the podcast a bunch of times. I'm like, do you ever get tired of hearing yourself? She's like, all the time. Oh God, that feels so much better. It's hard when you're a speaker and you have to listen to yourself. I don't have it when I'm working on memoir. Really? Thank God. I have it for blog posts, for the podcast, and I have it for social media, but I don't have it when I'm working on the middle. Wow. Which tells me that I'm doing my best work. Yeah. In a book. That's interesting. I save my stories. 
you know, some of the reviews for beautiful writers were I read online were like, I've been in Linda's group for a long time and I had no idea she had these stories. I don't share as a rule the stories I have in the book are fresh. I've been carrying them around for a decade or more and I've been reworking them endlessly. They're fresh for others. So for me, that makes them fun to write. The most fun story, and I'm going to leave this as an Easter egg for the listener to get when you get the book. You need to be on the lookout for the story about Seal. Oh my God. Okay, I freaking live for Seal. I have been in love with that man for 20 plus years. The story about you and Seal is priceless. And the lesson that came out of that story is also priceless. But listener, you have to go check out the book and read it because it is it is not to be believed and it involves yeah. an outhouse. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave it at that. It's one of the craziest, if not the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. Absolute batshit out of this world insanity. And I think, what is it like, Linda, to do a memoir blended with these other writers and see all of your stories lined up like little chess pieces? Are you like, what even is this life? (laughs) Well, a few people have said things to me like, oh my God, you've lived the wildest life. And I'm like, huh, that's so foreign to my experience now. Because for the most part, since COVID, we all just sit at home. like. I've got a blanket around. You got your snuggly. You always yeah, I got, got my snuggly. snuggly. I got my tea. I got my yep. dog out waiting for me. Like life is pretty chill. When I go back and I relive the crazy, outrageous, over the top, clawing my way to the middle things that I did to get yeah. published, to get noticed, to network, yep. and make my dreams come true. Boy, I was flinging myself out there. Actually, this is probably a good little story to kind of anchor the conversation. One of the things that I find so mesmerizing about your life is that you have this almost like childlike sense of wonder about what's possible. One of my favorite origin stories that you tell about yourself involves how the hell you connected with the first entrepreneurial gig you took on that involves four-legged creatures and how that entrepreneurial gig became the gateway drug to you writing. Can you give us like the quick version of that? Because it's so telling yeah. about how you work with your intuition to follow. Yeah, yeah. So there's this chapter in the book called Paying the Rent, How to Make a Living Before It Pays to Write. And it opens with my husband, my new husband who I had just met and married screaming at me, get a fucking job because I was a little bit spoiled. Daddy had always taken good care of me and I married him and he was rich. He had $18,000 in the bank. And so I was... This is your ex-husband you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big hurry to make something with my life. So he's yelling at me and I'm bawling in the corner and I figure, okay, I'm going to go talk to God. We lived in LA. So I went to Beverly Hills to the nicest neighborhood. I'm hugging trees and praying to God. Okay, here's what I know I can do. I want to be outside a lot. I want to exercise a lot. I'd love to be with animals, blah, blah, blah. So I have this full blown waking vision, which had never happened to me before, where I see that I'm taking care of the pets of all these mansions that I'm walking by. Because you never see any people. They're all at Paramount Studio or Sony. They're not home. So 
I create this thing called Pet Companion and I'm taking care of all these beautiful houses, Kirk Douglas's house, Kiefer Sutherland's house, Catherine Oxenberg's house. And I get a job at a pet store slinging pet food so that I can meet clients. And I meet Paul Williams, the Academy Award winning songwriter. And he hires me instantly to take care of his huskies. And then I'm suddenly living in the same type of home in which I had my vision. And it just opens up everything because I watch Polly. Mm. I watch him write a song for Disney for the Muppet movie that gets nominated for an Emmy. I watch him write that song in five minutes over eating my lentil soup. And I started to see how creativity works. And I started to think of myself as a creative vision because I had just done that with my pet business. Couldn't I do it with something more creative? And once I interviewed him and it was like the best conversation of my life, I thought, oh, I could probably interview lots of people. And I kept going. And then that became the first book that you published, which was yeah. Live Charmed. Yeah. How do you describe that book? It's all about like the habits and systems of people that just... Yeah, that subtitle was Intimate Conversations with Extraordinary People. And I was noticing in my travels through these beautiful homes every day, Yeah, I was noticing that all these really successful people kept doing the same things over and over to succeed. And I felt like there was kind of a blueprint for success, but they all had different life stories. So I thought, well, let me just put all their wisdom into a book. It was so much fun. And it led to everything that I do now, right? It led to magazine columns. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, Linda, did I dream this or did you once interview Donald Trump? I did. I'm summoned to Trump Tower. I get this phone call. I had just interviewed Tony Robbins. I had done a series of interviews with Tony Robbins. This was for a book too. So Life's Charm was published. Mm -hmm. It was really successful in the media. So now I'm working on book two. And I had interviewed Tony Robbins pretty extensively. He did some like stadium tour with 22,000 people and Donald was there because this was like the year 1998 or 1999. And he was considering running for president. So he wanted to do a speech at this thing. So I go to the lunch or some VIP lunch with 350 people there. And I get a call on the way home from a USA Today reporter who happened to love my book. And he said, hey, I was flying back on Trump plane and Donald wants to be in your book. And then Donald's office is calling, having me come to New York. And what a trip. But like, think about that for a second. Like, this is the power of living sort of intuitively. You go from girl, get a job. Pet companion. And this is what I love in your book. Your husband, your then husband was like, people aren't going to pay you 10 bucks an hour to walk their dogs. And you're like, honey, they're going to pay me 25. Oh yeah. Just that absolute unshakable self-belief. Then you follow the breadcrumbs. It becomes the book. The book becomes such a success that you have the Donald calling you to get into your book. Yeah. And life just unfolds. And this is where I want to close this out, Linda. If you are talking to someone who's listening to us talk and they're like, I feel so beat down. I'm so tired. It's been a whole pandemic. I'm exhausted, but I still have the ache. What is the piece of advice or thing you want them to remember to get them back into a place of possibility? So it's an uphill climb for all of us at all times. 
And even that conversation, even just the topic of the Donald interviewing him, I did not publish book two because that interview did not work for me. There were things I did not like about that interview. First and foremost, I'm a tree-hugging environmentalist. And when I asked him about building environmentally, he's like, of course, I'm an environmentalist. We have to be with the damn tax codes or whatever. It wasn't the answer I was looking for. And I found that a lot of times where they say, be careful of meeting your idols. Not that he was an idol, but that so many of the heavy hitting sort of especially macho people that were famous at the time that I was interviewing were not the image or the model that I wanted to be putting out into the world. So I dropped that book. And I would say along the way in my career, I've dropped a lot of things because they don't feel right. They don't work out right. The timing is is just off. Mm -hmm. But I always try to learn from everything. I always say there's no wasted time. So... No matter what it is that you're working on, whether you're on your 15th draft of a novel that never sells, like Patricia Cornwell, who's sold a hundred million of just this Scarpetta series alone, says she's got four novels in her drawer that she will never sell because they're terrible in her eyes. So whatever it is that you're doing that you've just been trying to hold on to that's kind of really dear to your heart, but feels also heartbreaking, Mm. know that any of us with a dream have been there. Wow. And it might be time for you to get reacquainted with your why. You know, why are you doing it? What is it that's so delightful inside your heart about this project? And if it no longer pleases you, find out why. Mm -hmm. Do you need editing? Do you need a coach? Do you need a writing class? Do you need therapy to let go of the pain of it? Do you just need time away from it for a while? Or is somebody in your life attached to the project that scares you that you need to heal or have distance with that person? So there's a lot of reasons why our projects can kind of be breaking our heart. But when you get back in touch with what you love about it and focus and pour your energy into the love, I think you can regain your momentum and your enthusiasm and have the results that you want. I love that. That is so awesome. Oh, my cup feels full. I came into this conversation so frazzled and Twitter pated and I feel grounded and cozy and like I want to write. Yeah. So that's a win. And also, thank you. Thank you for including my name a couple of times in here. I mean... I'm sorry. I'm on the same page as Jane Goodall. Okay, girl. You have the most magical stories. The one that I love the most is that one where you had the dream. Talk about magic. Your dream is one of the most dramatic things I've ever heard. I mean, I don't know if you want to share it now or if you want them to just... I I will share it. And I feel like some of my people have heard this before, but it's the only time that's ever happened to me, Linda. It's never happened to me since. It never happened to me before, but... It was when I was trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. I was so just stuck. I'd been doing PR and like, what am I going to do? Am I going to move to New York? Am I going to move to DC? Like, where am I going to go? And I had a dream one night. And in my dream, there was a wall with just covered top to bottom with handwriting, like cursive. 
And it was like somebody had been taking the most loving notes on my entire life up into that point and into the future. And I just remember straining my neck to see all the writing. I couldn't believe that something or someone was paying that close attention to me. And the only piece of sentence that I remember from that wall was the one that said, don't go anywhere. You are right where I want you. And I was in San Francisco and I was like, all right, guess Mm -hmm. I'm staying in San Francisco. And I literally met my husband shortly thereafter. And the rest, as they say, is history. And that's that magic. It's not always consistent. We don't always dream prophetic dreams. No. But it's rarely. It's there. Rarely, but when we do and when we follow them, yeah, everything changes. There's a before and after. That is so well said. There is a before and an after. Well, Linda, thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you for putting this beautiful book out into the world. Everybody, go get it. Highlight the shit out of it like I did. And get cracking, get to work on your piece. Thanks for having me on your beautiful show. I love your show. Love that conversation. Love this question. Do you have the ache? Do you think you might have it in you to write something? If so, take a crack at it. Make the time. Aproveche el tiempo, I believe is the way I would conjugate that in Spanish. Anyway, the point is, Even if it's 15 minutes, steal away, sit in a closet like Glennon Doyle used to do. Write, my friend, just write. Hey, if you're still with me and you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest episodes delivered hot off the press. And feel free to share this with someone who could use a little inspiration. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And on Monday mornings, you will receive a communication tip to work with for the week. And on Saturday mornings, you'll receive a short little email with three things I am listening to or reading or digging right now. Also find me on my new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash this is Bronwyn, B-R-O-N-W-Y-N, where I drop new content every Thursday covering strategies for getting more confident during moments of conflict. And speaking of conflict, if you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing difficult conversations, check out my new online course called the No Enemy Client Conversation. And that is noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. That's noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. As always, you can find me on Instagram at bronwynsf where I offer a lot of behind the scenes insights into how I make all this content and run my business for those coaches and solopreneurs who need a little inspo. And lastly, if your company or organization needs a high-voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I'm your gal. Shoot me a note. Let's make some magic happen. That's Bronwyn at BronwynCommunications.com. Shine on, my friend. Have a beautiful week and we will see you next time.